Technology advances enable artificial intelligence machine learning beyond anyone's imagination. Artificial intelligence, or AI, and what is known as machine learning in the scientific and computing communities seem to be improving exponentially every single day now. Practical applications currently abound, and in the near future, they will seem magical. Strap in tight, because we'll be discussing what is happening now and these amazing possibilities today on The Rob Manus Show. I'm retired Colonel Rob Manus. Your kids and grandkids are being taught to hate America in public schools using flawed ideas like the 1619 Project. You can provide an antidote to this disease of hate for all America stands for. It's Dennis Hawes, The Road to Americanism. You can make sure our young people learn to love America and become the citizens we need to protect her future. Order The Road to Americanism on Amazon.com right now. We've got an exciting show for those of you that like geeking out on emerging technologies in the field of artificial intelligence today. In the introduction to his new book, today's guest asks and answers the following questions. Have you ever wondered if there are limits to what computer programs can solve? Nowadays, computers appear to do a lot more than unravel mathematical equations. In the last half a century, programming has become the ultimate tool to automate tasks and save time. But how much can we automate? And how do we go about doing it? Can a computer observe a photograph and say, aha, I see a lovely couple walking over a bridge under an umbrella in the rain. Can software make medical decisions as accurately as trained professionals can? Can software predictions about the stock market perform better than humans otherwise could? The achievements of the past decade hint that the answer to all of these questions is a resounding yes, and that the implementations appear to share a common strategy. Recent theoretical advances coupled with newly available technologies have enabled anyone with access to a computer to attempt their own approach at solving these incredibly hard problems. Programmers no longer need to know the intricate details of a problem to solve it. Consider converting speech to text, our author says. A traditional approach may involve understanding the biological structure of human vocal cords to figure out utterances by using many hand-designed, domain-specific, unrecognizable or ungeneralizable pieces of code. But nowadays, it's possible to write the code that looks at many examples and figures out how to solve the problem, if it's given enough time and examples. Here's another example, identifying the sentiment of text in a book or a tweet as positive or negative. Hmm, I wonder how that could come into play. Or you may want to identify the text even more granularly, such as text that implies the writer's likes or loves things that she hates or is angry or sad at. Past past approaches to performing this task were limited to scanning the text in question, looking for harsh words such as ugly, stupid, miserable, to indicate angry or sad, or punctuation such as exclamation marks. 
which could mean really happy or angry, but not exactly in between, according to our author. Dr. Chris Matman is the author of Machine Learning with TensorFlow, the second edition, and is the division manager for the Artificial Intelligence Analytics and Innovation Development Organization in the Information Technology and Solutions Directorate at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and he's our guest today. Welcome to the Rob Mana Show, Dr. Chris Matman, author of a new book on machine learning and uh, uh, a big player at the NASA, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, and heavily involved in artificial intelligence and what it has to do with almost everything we do today. Chris, welcome to the show. Rob, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me and, and looking forward to uh, shooting the breeze with you today. Yeah, man, I'm excited about this. Uh, before we went on, I told Chris that I had gone to first and second grade at Edwards Air Force Base, California. I'll be 59 years old uh, this coming weekend, so you can imagine that was in the 60s. There was a lot going on about fast airplanes and space travel and all kinds of things when my dad was working out there, and he actually worked up in the mountains at a JPL site. Uh, along with some civilians he was in the Air Force. So I'm excited to have you on, man. So talk about your new book. It's called Machine Learning and TensorFlow, the second edition. Just give the audience a brief rundown on that because I want to send them to you know buy the book, especially those that are interested in, in how artificial intelligence uh, works and what machine learning has to do with it and those kind of things. And I know you, you talk about it in your book. I read it. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I don't know if the audience will be able to go down into the mathematical pieces of it. Uh, I struggled with that a little bit. I, look, I was a C student in math. <laughs> but, I don't uh, believe that uh, for but, a second. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I'm ex I was excited to read about it. Uh, I cut my teeth on Fortran, COBOL, and matrices and all kinds of things. So uh, it was a pretty uh, challenging but a really uh, fun read for me to actually dive into some current uh, thinking on what's going on with machine learning and artificial intelligence. So walk, walk the audience through the book really fast, and then I want to get on to what is our, you know, let you tell them what artificial intelligence is and how we use it today and what the future holds for us. Rob, thanks. Yeah, so th the simplest way that I could kind of explain this is that today, um, you know, we make a lot of decisions that are informed by data. And you know, everything from looking at, you know, a set of numbers in the past and then trying to predict what the set of numbers are or will be in the future from things like stocks to maybe measurements of temperature and things like that. And so that looking at data in the past, building a mental model in our minds, uh, you know, of trends and things related to that and then making predictions based on those trends in the future, that's the basic principle of machine learning. And then evaluating the model, evaluating the you know quality of those predictions, and then also all of the work uh, that you need to do to prepare the data uh, to basically model the real world. Um, the data is matrices largely, like you talk about, everything from a set of numbers, you know, we, and if you capture a number of those over time, all of a sudden you look, you got a, you got a matrix. And, um, and today in machine learning, we call those tensors, uh, which are just basically representations of numbers and matrix. And so there are many frameworks by the big media companies or big internet companies today to do machine learning, to look at data, 
make predictions, evaluate the quality of that. And, uh, you know, because we call uh, the data itself and the things we're making predictions about tensors, one of the frameworks that's made by Google is called TensorFlow. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Google collects a bunch of data, uh, you know, on, on everything from our purchases, what, you know, what we buy to what we search for. And the things that they're trying to predict based on that data is us. You know, what future things we'd like to buy, uh, you know, in the pre-pandemic world, what movies we want to go to, you know, based on where we visited and things mm -hmm. like that. And these all become prediction problems. Um, and so Google, you know, being, you know, a pretty good company and so forth, they've contributed a lot of their frameworks and their software into what we call the open source community, which is the set of people that are trying to build kind of common software and share it and let others build on top of it, whether you're going to build a company, whether you're going to give it to the government, you know, or things like that. And, um, and so Google released their framework to do all of their big machine learning on big computers, and that's called TensorFlow. And, um, and so there are other, you know, machine learning frameworks, but that's the one that Google's released. And that's the one that about two years ago in my journey, sort of at being the AI, you know, division manager at JPL, and I'm sitting around looking at my people and they're talking about all this machine learning stuff. And I'm like, you know, I need to get, you know, schooled on this. So I got, I got a book, you know, uh, from Manning Publications, the first edition of this mm -hmm. machine learning with TensorFlow book. And I read it and the thing, you know, my eyes were open. I remember nine months in telling my wife, oh my God, I get what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, I get what they're talking about with this <laughs> machine learning stuff. I see you can, the machines can basically, you know, you can teach the machines based on models and these tensors to hear like we hear. That's where Alexa comes from and yeah. the Siri and all that. You can teach them to see like our eyes see based on our eyes, visual cortex, and models of tensors based on that, so convolutional neural networks. And then mm -hmm. you can teach them to do all the same predictions of sentiment, whether things or people are polarized based on what we type and write, you know, like I said, number predictions, and then even more advanced stuff. So so the book, what my version of the book, the new newest version of the book, Machine TensorFlow does, is when I read that first version of the book, it basically gave you like introductions to all of those different areas and those topics, like making computers learn to see, making them learn to hear, all of these yeah. things based on machine learning. But then the hard part of actually going out, collecting the data, you know, having code and real examples that walk you through how to do this was missing. And so during wow. my journey of reading the first part, the first edition of the book, I probably did nine months of work to collect all of these information, to build code, to have examples that work. And by the end of it, I said, oh, God, you know, I have enough material for a new book. And uh, that, that's the idea for the book was born. And, um, and yeah, so anyways, I'm really excited for the book to come out. Um, it, it walks you through many real examples, again, from how do you build your own version of like a Siri. These are called long short-term memory networks or recurrent yeah. neural networks to how you build things like facial identifiers, like it works on your Apple iPhone where now you put it to your face and that's how you, you know, do biometrics to see. That's a convolutional neural network. We build one of those in the book. And then everything yep. from, you know, hopefully teaching your listeners and everybody how they can get, get smart and get rich on micro trading and stocks, you know, and building bots yeah. to basically do that for us. So. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to get, I want to get this out to my audience is that you actually give practical ways you can actually build these uh, 
these pieces of code and these the, these uh, uh, these processes uh, to function in the real world for real world functions, and you give people the ability to be able to do that. So I think folks ought to check it out. I mean, it, it the uh, one of the questions that came to my mind is that you talk about in the book uh, that the basic tensor uh, to, to use the shorthand, uh, has to be trained. So you train it and it learns, right? Uh, and the, the, I'm assuming the, the operator develops the training code that, that gets the machine to learn. So, uh, but then there's another evolution that's occurred, hasn't there, Chris? Talk about, can you talk about that, that where the machine actually lear- starts learning new things on its own? Did I understand that correctly? You totally did, Rob. And um, and so basically, what happens is in in the real world, you know, it is, you know, it is a significant investment to collect and curate the training required for machine learning. And in fact, most of the work that we talk about in the book that I talk about is all the work that you have to do to prepare a data set to make yeah. it, you know, trainable. And to you know, so that's the work that that you you know you're talking about. So just imagine, you know, if I want to predict stock prices. I probably want to make sure I have it at the right, you know, fidelity of transactions and the right amount of time slots and, and things like that, uh, you know, to be able to make, you know, really good predictions. Um, mm-hmm. If I don't have a highly temporal data set or if my numbers are kind of wildly off, you know, then the machine is no smarter than its ability for garbage in, garbage out. You know, and another way to kind of think about mm-hmm. this, too, is like, say, you know, say today you were trying to build something to recognize cats in videos. Those types of labels are are pretty cheap. We can we can get those. We can go farm that yeah. out to somebody else and have them do it because you don't need a ton of expertise to delineate between say cats in images or videos and and other things. But what if I asked you to look at say Martian geography, right? And mm-hmm. I wanted Rob to make the machine learning algorithm give me predictions about what is a, you know, sandstone versus granite, you know, out there and how close or how far it is to a rover. All of a sudden, those types of predictions and the labels and the training data that you need to do that become infinitely more expensive. Um, And Mm -hmm. this is why there's delineation between government doing machine learning and, say, commercial companies. Commercial companies typically focus on generic tasks where they can easily curate and collect using the world data, labeled training data. But they don't solve the really hard problems in a specific domain that we typically have, as you remember from your time in government, in government. You know, they don't tell us how to solve the Martian geology prediction problem or they don't, you know, help us necessarily like do really good predictions of how much fuel we need to, you know, refuel an aircraft mid-flight and things like that. And that's where those domain specific kind of data sets that you need to curate and those high fidelity labels, that Mm -hmm. is, you know, the cost that you put into that, that's kind of the delineating factor. Back to the point about learning, um, if we can capture such a data set, develop high accuracy machine learning algorithms and predictions, well, then all of a sudden, the algorithm that we trust can generate us new data. It could close its eyes and imagine, you know, more data like that. And I think that's what you're talking about, and that's what we talk about in the book. Yeah, so so just so... For the viewers, and so I fully understand. So if I'm if I've sent a machine to Mars uh, under this new ability to learn, I give it like a core set of hey, this is granite here on the Earth, blah blah blah, 
but it now has the ability to look at that uh, a, ge a geodetic, you know, item uh, and say, you know, well, this looks like what I have, but, you know, I see this, this, and this, and, and, and make a decision or increase its database, basically, is what I understand it's doing in a practical sense to now include this unique piece of Martian uh, geodetic structure that never existed in our databases before. 100 percent. Is that accurate? And, um, okay. That's totally accurate, Rob. And, um, you know, the, the the big deal is that there are places where it's really hard to collect that type of information. You know, we can only send yeah. so many missions to Mars, you know, and the cost of capturing those types of labels is hard. So what we can do and, you know, what the book talks about and also just, you know, for the purposes of our conversation and your viewers, there's this concept of transfer learning. So we can train things terrestrially. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we can say, here's a rock, here's a sandstone on Earth. And then yeah. once our algorithm gets to Mars, we can transfer that knowledge and learn new predictions and, and new data and new labels and things like that. So so why is this important, you know, for your viewers? So the round trip light time from Earth to Mars is about eight minutes. Okay, right. so we send a message from Earth to Mars and we get a reply back in about eight minutes. So so just given that very, very thin pipe, we have to use it very efficiently. You know, the cost per bit transfer, you know, in that pipe of data is very large, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and and so given that, you know, and, you know, when we send software to Mars, it takes nine months for our rovers or things that have the software on it, uh, you know, to get there. We can upgrade it later, but that's also expensive. So right. so one thing that we're working on nowadays, I think that's really amazing that I'm really excited about is that the hardware, you know, the, the processing power on these rovers today has largely been the equivalent of an iPhone one. And so okay. just, you know, to kind of set the context, that's not a lot of processing power, right? You can remember back your iPhone one compared to whatever iPhone, you know, there is today, if you have yeah. the 12 or 11, you know, there's been a big difference. Well, yeah. why is that? Um, it's because when we send hardware to space, um, you know, one of the challenges with that is that there's this, you know, ugly thing called cosmic radiation. And what mm -hmm. it does is it challenge it, it messes with our hardware. It flips the ones to zeros on it and it does other wonky stuff that basically mess it up. And so what we have to do is to ensure that our hardware is radiation hardened, um, you know, and so because of that, it's slowed the technology adoption of new hardware. But tomorrow we, you know, I'm really excited. We will have high performance space flight computing, which is, you know, powerful, uh, you know, basically as it turns out today, to do all this machine learning training, you need these things called GPUs, which were graphical processing units, which were made popular basically by video games. Um, yeah. Video games have a lot of graphics in them. And because of that, um, you know, they've had to develop kind of efficient methods of processing you know, specific mm -hmm. data and instructions that are, you know, appropriate to machine learning. Um, those GPUs have never really been sent into space um, because we, we haven't had uh. ones that have been radiation hardened, but tomorrow we will. There's the high performance spaceflight computing effort, which is a joint project between the Air Force and NASA that is giving us new processors today that can run machine learning on board and actually make the rovers smarter. 
And wow. that's, I think, something that, you know, you know, is definitely up your alley, you know, based on our conversations. And those are some things to be excited about. So imagine rovers that can do machine learning on board, update their predictions, update what they're seeing, and use more efficiently that very, very small, thin mm. pipe from Earth to Mars by giving us better information and having more autonomy. Wow. That, see, this is why I wanted to get you on the show, Chris. Uh, it feeds my, my geeking out, but also uh, I'm very interested in that, that level of technology advancement. Uh, so just to come back to Earth a little bit, uh, what's the relationship in layman's terms between art, the term artificial intelligence and machine learning? I think I understand it, but just lay that out for the audience. Yeah, so about 20 to 30 years ago, I think artificial intelligence was sort of in a, a dead era academically because really what it, it referred to was sort of probabilistic logic mm -hmm. and people kind of you know trying to think about like inference and, and just solely making predictions. But the challenge that they had were all of the advanced techniques that they needed both in the area of making sure that you have a very, very strong input data set of labels from things that you mm -hmm. want to predict and having lots and lots of it. And the techniques that hadn't arrived yet, like having computers powerful enough to model our prediction process biologically, like our brain does or like our eyes do, you know, neural networks. They were impossible yeah. 30 years ago because we didn't have the computing or the data power to do it. And so AI went through this point where it was just like propositional logic or statements of truth and expert systems or rule-based systems to basically solve problems. They were very brittle. They relied on people basically, you know, very stringently defining the rules in big if then else blocks, like if this, then try that. Else I understand that. Yeah, <laughs> I I could. Well, when you when you said you know when you said Fortran and Cobol, brother, I was I was right there yeah. with you. I, I I know. So they basically looked like that. They looked okay. like those yep. types of systems. And um, so what has changed and where machine learning I think has become sort of you know the lingua franca now is computing has evolved to a point of where we can make models just like our eyeballs or like our eardrums or like our brains. Um, and to do that, you need the computational power of things like these graphical processing units, GPUs, generalized ways to use them efficiently, you know, and to have massive amounts of them that the cloud companies like Google, uh, you know, and Facebook have now, and Amazon have now made available to the general population. Um, you needed all that computing power, and then you needed the focus on building high-quality, you know, labeled data sets and all yeah. of the big data and, and the things like that. And so when people are talking about machine learning nowadays, they're talking about the whole ecosystem of cloud, high quality labeled data sets, GPUs and things like that. Typically when people talk about AI or artificial intelligence, they're talking about that like expert system, generalized intelligence from years ago. But really machine yeah. learning is the practical realization of that today. That's what I was gathering from the book. I mean, I was impressed that you kind of just nonchalantly segue to a topic called convoluted neural networks uh, about three quarters of the way through your book. And I'm like, well, that's not anything I've ever heard of uh, from, a, from a programmer perspective. But I, 
I understand it once I put the two pieces together that my 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 internal uh, definition of AI was a little bit dated when I started checking your book out and it became updated as I went through. I just wanted you to walk through that for the folks. So so when so how is uh, to use a, a, a common term AI? How, how, how do we see it in our everyday lives? Uh, I mean, that, I think most people know about the Teslas. It's like a smart car uh, now. Uh, uh, but, but is there really uh, the advanced artificial intelligence in our everyday lives uh, you know, here at Earthbound? Yeah, absolutely, Rob. The, the AI that you see in your daily life, just imagine your smartphone. Your smartphone has on it, uh, you know, typically if it's a you know, iPhone nowadays, you know, to log into it, you have to do your face ID. And mm -hmm. how do they do that? They capture a couple of different pictures of sort of different angles of your face. I'll give, you know, your viewers my, you know, bearded mug right here, give them, you know, a perspective. Yeah. They capture that. And then what they associate with that is a label, you know, Chris Matman. And what they do is they run it through uh, what's called a convolutional neural network that's already been trained on millions, hundreds of millions of people to recognize what the important features in people's faces are. Like, you know, features are basically properties about data. If your data is an image, the features might be, you know, people that look like Chris Matman have a nose that has this type of shading or mm -hmm. that has an eyebrow that's kind of like, you know, darker or you know, that has, you know, a face that's more rounded or, and so it captures all of these features, um, you know, by giving it that data. And then to log into my phone, I need to present a new face. That new face, when I hold my phone up to it, is an instance, a new type of data that I want to make a prediction using my previously trained model on. That's, you know, one use of, of say, things like that. Another if you have smart devices in your house, like Alexas or things like that, mm -hmm. when you speak to Alexa, that is sound. Um, and that sound can be broken down into little chunks, right, of like, say, mm -hmm. five second intervals and things like that. And as it turns out, um, they have a model called deep speech. Deep speech is sort of um, what we call a long short term memory or LSTM time series model and what that is is that has been trained on utterances you know like at different intervals and what letter those utterances in various languages combine or i'm sorry result in so you know ah bay say like abc those utterances in english correspond to the letters or characters abc and lstm doesn't just make a prediction right then you know, it makes a prediction right then, and then it captures all previous predictions. That's why it's a time series model. And as it turns out, what you can do and the way that you can learn language is to train on massive amounts of sound and the associated character levels, uh, you know, characters that are associated with those particular utterances or those sounds, just like humans learn. It's the same way, like when your, wow. you know, son or daughter hear things that's how they're learning they're associating yeah. small utterances with you know characters and language so so anyways your 
your smartphone, your home intelligent device, those are two examples, you know, where you're using a CNN for facial identification and biometrics, and you're using a time series model to basically interpret speech. And then once once the uh, Alexa or the Siri knows what the characters or the words that you were asking for, these big companies have huge databases and search engines of products, of commands to run. Like, I mean, hell, Rob, you can even start your car nowadays by talking to your Alexa and have it start, yeah. you know, your Cadillac or whatever, you know? <laughs> uh, I've seen that. So, so taking that a, a leap forward, uh, I've seen the, the advertisements with Alexa in the car. Uh, do you see in the very near future? I do. Uh, I just want to get a, a, you know, a bona fide scientist uh, confirmation out of this. So my car that's got Alexa in it, uh, combined with autopilot technology and self-driving car technology can now talk to me, uh, plus, be able to see and identify obstacles in front of me, avoid those, slow down, et cetera, with minimal interaction from the human occupants of the vehicle? 100%. And, uh, and the, way, the way that it's doing that is um, one, well, I sort of hinted at this, but you made it completely kind of first class. All of these cars, just like you know your Alexa or your phone, have sensors on them. So yeah. the cars have what we call LiDAR, which are distance sensors. They're a form of radar, which I know you yeah. know about, but you know, for your audience, mm -hmm. they're, they're these distance sensors. And so you need that to basically measure how far away you are from things and, and things like that to decide, like you said, when to stop you know, automatically and, and all that. And mm -hmm. then your car, these, these Teslas and things like that, you know, these smart cars, they've got dozens of cameras all over. And what those are doing is they're doing convolutional neural networks. They're judging based on the scenery combined with the distance that they're getting from the LIDAR. They're making predictions. Should I mm -hmm. you know, continue driving at this speed? How far away am I from the car? Oh, given the environment where I see people or I see a stop sign or things like that, what should you know, we do? And there's only so many actions you know, in a car that you can do. I mean, it's complex enough that there mm -hmm. are more than one or two or three, but they now have it down to a science, ultimately, where, yes, like the, the autopilot on your Tesla, you know, I mean, sure, it's been responsible for some accidents and, and things like that. And, and obviously those mm -hmm. shouldn't yeah. be, you know, minimized. But if you, know, if you look over five, 10 years, if you predict out, you know, these, these things are going to drive much better and probably just as well as humans are because they don't carry with it the baggage you know, or, or anything. They simply, their job is to take input, make predictions, you know, based on the past and, you know, do basically what we tell it to do. And, um, and, yeah. and so, you know, some of the challenges, uh, you know, related to smart cars, since we're on that topic, I might as well bring up is mm -hmm. it goes back to some of the stuff that we talked about, which is um, that the challenges that they've had is when the smart car hasn't been trained or hasn't seen you know, particular obstacles or items or even people. It, the reality right. is nowadays, sometimes the people data sets or the data that we train is really over biased to a, a population or an ethnicity, or even, you know, say one of the, the earliest challenges with smart cars is that it hadn't really seen a lot of examples of, say, people in wheelchairs. And so, yeah, that you would, use that example in your book. I was going to ask, that was my next question was talk about that. Yeah. So keep talking about that. <laughs> that 
Rob, that was, you know, that's that's a big challenge. Like we were talking about in in the yeah. real, you know, machine learning elements, you know, nowadays of collecting um, a valuable labeled data set, you know, that's balanced and fair. And those are some of the questions that people are asking right now is about balance and fairness, you know, and just making sure that you're modeling the world, you know, correctly, you know, and yeah. and appropriately. And so. Um, so there are real, you know, there are real good efforts and questions to try and correct that, I think, and to make those data sets better. And we should ask those questions, you know, as scientists and as people doing it. Does it scare me off that these are, you know, immediately non-usable because of that? Heck no. These these things are totally, yeah. you know, usable. And these are those are edge problems that will be fixed, you know. Um, and, uh, and and so. So now this leads us maybe, you know, in, into another topic that I think, you know, you might be interested in. But, you know, it's it's that, OK, smart cars are here today. They're integrated with all of this, you know, AI, you know, machine learning and things like that, you know, and, and platforms. Um, tomorrow, the application of it to, say, an industry like trucking, where mm -hmm. there are real human you know issues with drivers driving for very long hours like 18 hours and things like that where the human body kind of breaks down but say you know smart trucks you know wouldn't have some of those problems and so the challenge with that is when people talk about that in absence of you know uh, or you know with words like well you know they'll just have to learn to, you know if we displace a million truckers over the next five years they'll just have to learn you know new skills and things like that i i kind of take a different approach, you know, to it. I say, you know, a lot of the edges of machine learning right now are taking subject matter experts in a domain that we're automating or yeah. making, you know, machine learning and leveraging and getting their subject matter expert knowledge and paying the crap out of them to do that. And that's what we should do. We should take and learn and use that industry and those people in that industry as subject matter experts, pay them more and beyond a fair and living wage to basically get all of those, you know, knowledge out of them to to make, you know, and so when people tell me, like, yeah. learn to code or things like that for these, you know, things, I say, no, I say subject matter experts get the data from them and the knowledge because that's going to be those missing pieces over the next five or 10 years that we're really going to need that gives them more of a landing strip you know, to to develop new capabilities, you know? Well, uh, well, and what you're describing, Chris, is an evolution that we that we're at based on where we've been, you know, where, uh, you know, our old archaic when when I was a very young person just delving into computing technology was our, our archaic view of the world was totally different. Uh, and we didn't have the bandwidth, so to speak, to uh, to be able to incorporate every characteristic. We have that now. Uh, and I think that model that you're describing about displacing workers is not, it, it, we need to reassess that and, and, and reimagine it, uh, to use a term that's popular today amongst the younger set, uh, as we take the subject matter experts, I like the way you put that, uh, but that should be the standard as we move into the future with these technologies that make all of our lives uh, better, more effective, more prosperous, uh, and bring those groups of people along uh, within that evolution instead of leaving them behind. Yeah, 100%. That's, that's yeah. exactly right. That's like exactly that. right, Rob. You know, yeah, and, I like uh, that. 
you know, uh, let's take remotely piloted aircraft. Okay, a lot of pilots that I used to fly with, I, I was a weapon systems officer, what they call a backseater, so I wasn't driving the airplane uh, unless I had to. But, uh, you know, a lot of pilots are worried about, well, this is going to put me out of a job if we automate passenger planes and all that. Well, no, actually it didn't. It created more jobs uh, yeah. uh, it, it, uh, for that type of expertise, and it created... Uh, jobs in the technological and scientific advancement fields because the scientists had to use uh, our subject matter expertise in order to build the data sets and the models and to continue to improve those data sets and models to make the, the uh, effort successful. And it goes on today. It's a, it's a continuous improvement process, so that need will always be there. Does that make sense? 100%, 100% Rob. It, it totally does. And you know, you know, along those lines, you know, it's funny, data science is a hot job, you know, nowadays and everything, but we've even reached the point of where, so, so just real quick, the, for, for the audience, data science is basically the process of, you know, visualizing data and making, you know, analyses about it. It's you know, doing math and statistics and curating data and making it so that you can search for it and all of these things. This whole process today has now gotten to a point where even, you know, building models and doing things in data science, there is something called automated data science or automated machine learning. And in that, you know, typical scenario, it kind of works like this. A data scientist, you know, that works for you or me, they may, when we give them a task that we expect them to complete in six to eight weeks, you know, we say, hey, you know, I want you to predict the stock market or, you know, again, I take yeah. another thing. I want you to build a really good facial identification system, you know, internally at our organization for our people for checking in at the gate or something. Um, they will only ever have time in the constraints that they were given to explore a couple of different ways of, of modeling it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're going to. That, you know, if it's a if it's a stock market thing, they might try a regression algorithm or a random forest or something like that. But because of time constraints, they're going to try a couple, and they're going to pick the best one, and they're just going to go on, and that's you know usually good enough. Well, imagine if instead the machine could you know what if there were actually a hundred different models that they could build, a hundred different solutions or even mm -hmm. a thousand different solutions to those problems. Well we can model though even that problem nowadays and allow the machines to explore the solution space and to try out you know many many more approaches than say humans can and recommend say the best one so we may miss out if we only try two or three different ways to solve the yeah. you know facial identification or the stock market prediction problem we may miss out but the machines you know they may not so this as long as we treat that you know as intelligent assistance you know, or automation that helps those people like you're talking about, you know, evolve, adapt, you know, create new jobs even, then, you know, the mundane work of, oh, you know, Rob gave us another regression problem, so we'll just try a couple <laughs> of different ways and do it. The mundane yeah. problem of that, they can start to work on other new jobs and skills that it gives them career evolution. So it's exactly what you're talking about, Rob. Yeah, is that is that the, uh, I'm going to, completely geek out here, but is that the black box process you talked about in your book? That's Are we exactly talking about the, black, the same thing? That, that's exactly the black, pro, okay. black box process. The idea is that, you know, inside of the black box is the solution space. 
you know, mm -hmm. for, for basically doing this. And then most people, when they do machine learning, they dance around the edges of that black box or they only explore yeah. a couple elements because they only have time. The reality is, what if you had a machine that could explore the inside of the black box to solve and try all different ways, you know, of solving problems? And that's, you know, that's kind of what we're talking about. So so even the hotshot job of data science itself, you know, in five to yeah. 10 years, maybe also completely revolutionized by very similar things. It's not just the truckers, it's, uh, you know, the, the other jobs as well. Well, as we advance in, in computing technology, which we, I believe that we will continue to do so, uh, especially as we discover new combinations of materials and, and uh, approaches and everything, I can see the black box process you're describing becoming a neural network of black boxes to all solving problems in real time 24 7 every day uh, to to address different human functions that require to be uh, uh, taken care of uh, because that's that's the evolutionary next step in, in the whole evolution from I mean I kind of started at the basic one and zero machine language uh, and see all these new computer languages out and it's basically take arrived at this concept of uh, now we can have the machine looking at at hundreds or thousands of models in and of itself for a problem, and and then we can neural net the machines that are looking inside their own black boxes. Uh, I'm excited about the future when I start thinking about where this is going uh, because we can see where we've been and the advances that we've made, and it's incredibly exciting. I think to uh, I wish I was 20 again and just starting out. Uh, quite frankly. So, so Chris, uh, you work for JPL, NASA's JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory folks. Uh, uh, I know you've been involved in, in various space projects and everything. So, so where, for, for the viewers, as, as we wrap this up, let's end this, this segment on, on what the future holds for us in using this machine language and artificial intelligence uh, and its projected advances over the next 20 years uh, as we go to Mars, go back to the moon, uh, uh, get full autopilot cars and those kind of things. What do you see uh, as being fielded as practical technologies to use to get us back to Mars and learn to live there and those kinds of things? Yeah, Rob, there's, um, I'm gonna, I'll do two things. I'll do one, uh, infrastructure oriented, you know, element to that. And then we'll do one software and NAI. For infrastructure, we are reliant today on what we call the deep space network. And what that is, is a national, international crown jewel led by the US, which uh, is a radio, these big sort of football si stadium sized mm -hmm. dishes deployed in, in yeah. Madrid, Spain, Canberra, Australia, and also up here uh, at Fort Irwin Army Air Force Base at Goldstone. Uh, you know, up up here on the way to Vegas, you know, from Southern yeah. California. And yeah. these big football field sized dishes communicate, allow us to communicate both the U.S. and international partners with missions in deep space. And so, you know, what what needs to happen in order for us to have, you know, and so deep space radio waves, it works. But that's also the reason that we got eight minutes, you know, round trip time Earth to Mars. Exactly. You know, radio, radio waves only go so fast. So in yeah. the future, what we see for that is optical, laser-based communication. And we've already done some pathfinders, um, both in near Earth, called opals, uh, you know, from, you know, Earth, uh, you know, 
kind of close lower Earth orbit or near Earth to basically the ground. And we've shown that we can use lasers rather than radio waves for high bandwidth communication. And we've already started, mm. there's already been some technology demonstrations that show we can do basically a Earth to Mars, you know, basically optical relay network. So the future is we got to lay basically the infrastructure to have faster communications because when we, you know, have humans on Mars, hopefully in the 2030s, you know, one of yeah. the big asks, and I, I don't think it's a terrible ask, is that you could video stream it, you know, or we could, ha yeah. we could see, you know, and so we need optical for that. And so investments are being made to kind of do that. And that's fantastic. Given that, yeah. um, you know, the smart, the concept of smart hardware, the ability to do AI and machine learning on board. So, you know, like I was talking about the high performance space like computing, that is another kind of key thing that's going to enable the software along with the networking to do this because all of the cool machine learning stuff that we see terrestrially will not work unless we have that smart hardware, that GPU like radiation hardware on board. And so yeah. just to let you know, we have a technology demonstration on Mars 2020. That's our newest rover that's going to land in February. There is yeah. a helicopter. There's a drone helicopter on it. So the Mars 2020 rover has been named Perseverance. You know, we do a national competition children yeah. and we ask them at schools to give us a name. And so the rover's name is Perseverance and the helicopter's name is Ingenuity. And so when Perseverance lands on Mars in February, um, one of the things that's going to happen is that a little drone thing is going to come out of it and start to check out. And that drone, that, that little helicopter, is running uh, basically a technology demonstration of a GPU-like chip called the Snapdragon from Qualcomm. So okay. it will yep. have the ability to do AI and machine learning on board. And so we need more of those. Uh, we need to, you know, have more real deployments of actual AI machine learning on board, like Ingenuity. I'm really excited to see what results. And then we need the infrastructure in investments in telecom and in networking, Rob, so that we can, you know, broadcast this at a good bandwidth level back so, and that we can have increased autonomy and communication. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm glad you brought up the laser communication capability. Uh, that's uh, I've been involved in that in my Air Force career. And uh, that's basically creating fiber optics without the fiber. It's it's optical communication. Uh, and uh, we do have a lot of earthbound experience at it. And uh, I look forward to seeing the success of that. Well, Chris, thank you very much for coming on today. I appreciate it. I'm excited to uh, get the book out to my audience. Uh, I know I'm gonna ha you're gonna get some purchases out there uh, and everything. But uh, where can folks go to find you and and read more about what your work that you do uh, and uh, you know do their homework? Yeah. Um, so I have a, a LinkedIn profile. Um, I'm also on on social media. Uh, you know, just my name, Chris Matman. Uh, you know, the the trick with my name is it's got two of everything, two M's, two A's, two T's, two N's. So if you spell it with one N and you can't find me, that's why. But yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm on, I'm on all of those. And, uh, you know, I, I'd love, you know, I, I answer emails, unlike a lot of people, <laughs> you know, Rob's great, but I can't speak for the rest of the world. You know, send me an email, um, you know, and my Gmail or check me out on social media, you know, for that. And I, I, I'd love to hear from your audience. And it's been such a pleasure. And, and thank you so much, Rob, for having me on the show. 
Well, man, I'd love to have you back uh, next year after the rover lands uh, and the helicopter comes out. Uh, maybe I can get some footage of that and we can have a discussion about what you guys have learned uh, about that by then. Uh, and I appreciate you coming on. Dr. Chris Batman, folks, uh, thanks for coming on the Rob Manus Show. Until next week, we'll see you around.